are in uh, the book of Ezra, part two of a series called Restoration. If you were not here last week, man, you missed it. I want to give you a little bit of a recap to this, um, and we're kind of making our way through this. And I, I love these books. I love the history of God's people in the, in the Old Testament, because God doesn't, his, his, his plan is just still unfolding, and that's part of his plan. It wasn't just random history that happened. All of this reveals God's character. These books uh, in the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, all of these reveal his heart and they reveal his character. And we, we can look at these and say, God, what are you doing then and what are you doing today? Because the heart of God doesn't change, right? You guys with me? Wake up, everybody. Come on. <laughs> Two of you. So let me, I'm going to recap just a little bit of the background. Um, I won't do this every week, but I, we only did it last week, so I, I kind of want to just reinforce the... Uh, the setting for this, uh, Ezra and Nehemiah together were written originally as one book. Um, they described the return of the exiled people from captivity in Babylon back to their homeland in Jerusalem and, Ju- and Judah and, and the land of Israel. They had been in exile for 70 years. Their, their, their country had been, um, had been essentially uh, taken over and destroyed by the Babylonian Empire under Nebuchadnezzar. Uh, this is around 586 B.C. Um, after the northern kingdom of, of, of Israel was destroyed uh, by the Assyrians several um, years before, now the southern kingdom of Judah is destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the people, the remnants, God's people then, are taken into captivity by the Babylonians. Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is set on fire and destroyed. And this is the end of, of sort of centuries of of, of failure on the part of the, of the Jewish people to keep God's covenant law. They were led largely by just godless kings who were more interested in worshiping the gods of their neighbors than in honoring the law of God. So God brings judgment in the form of this captivity. Uh, and of course, the people are, are devastated. They are absolutely just confused and, and unsure. Despite what the prophets have told them, they're still questioning how, what, what's happened? God's not kept his promises. I thought we were special. I thought we were set apart. I thought God was going to make sure that, that there was a king on the, on, the, on the throne of David forever and ever. And for 70 years, they're living in Babylon, um, and, and their homeland lies in ruins. And then Ezra and Nehemiah come along, and this is the story of the return, about their restoration of the people. Um, and it's, it's a lengthy process. Here are some, some of the figures that as you read through, and I want to encourage you to go back and read through Ezra, it's only just a few chapters, Nehemiah is only a few chapters, you're going to see some of these names come up, um, Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, these are the names of some, some of the rulers of the Persian Empire um, successively. Um, so last week we read about how, how King Cyrus gave this, this formal command, um, releasing the people to return to Israel after the 70 years had been completed and how this was even prophesied by, by Jeremiah that this would happen. Um, uh, we're going to read about Ezra. We've not really seen him in the story yet. He comes a few years later after the story that we're in this morning. He's a Jewish scribe and a priest. He is focusing on restoring prayer and faithfulness to the law. Um, we're also, you know, we also will, will come across the name Nehemiah, especially in the book named Nehemiah. He is an officer in the king's court, an officer in the Persian king's court. He is a cupbearer to the king, right? He's a butler and a, and a steward, and he's responsible. And, and he, um, God uses him to sort of bring the people back to rebuild the wall um, several years later. You'll see the names Zerubbabel and Joshua. Both of those 
in our story that's taking place today and last week. Zerubbabel was a leader of the, of the first wave of people. We talked about how there are three um, subsequent waves of, of, um, of sort of people returning. And the first wave that we looked at last week had nearly 50,000 people coming, led by Zerubbabel and by the priest Joshua. And they, they come back and they make this first wave. Um, we'll also see the name Haggai and Zechariah. You'll recognize either names of books of the Bible, of course. These are what we call minor prophets because of their, their size. Uh, these, were, these were men who were living in this story. Um, and they're, they're, they're prophesying to this exact situation. Um, so, um, again, last week we, we talked about how the, the word came out from King Cyrus and under the leadership of Zerubbabel and Joshua, this wave of people make their way back. Um, I'm, I spent many of my years growing up in, in the town of Jackson, Mississippi. It's the capital of Mississippi. And I was, you know, I lived there from the time I think I was in sixth grade until I graduated high school. And um, I remember it was around 2005, I believe, following Hurricane Katrina. And you know, of course, the devastation. Brian lived through that down uh, on the Gulf Coast as well. Some incredible testimony there. Miraculous um, protection from the Lord. Um, but in, 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 in the wake of that devastation, there were floods of people that were leaving New Orleans to find refuge in other places. Many of them went to Houston, many of them went to Mobile, many of them kind of went, and many of them made their way to Jackson to sort of stay there because there was nowhere to go. Um, and in, in the months that follow, there was this sort of realization, not so much on the part of Jackson and the people, but especially on the part of New Orleans, we need our people to come home. And they erected billboards sort of in these other cities, in Mobile and in Jackson. And I remember seeing the one in Jackson. It said this, a big J sign that says this, Jackson made you welcome. New Orleans wants you home. I was like, wow, that's, that's, I can almost sort of feel like this tension of like, you know, I left that area, devastation, now I'm making my home in this other city. Do I even want to go back? Do I even want to go back to the, to the lower ninth? You know, or do I even want to go back to, to, to where there's just devastation and loss? You know, so there was this sort of this public um, movement to bring New Orleanians back home again. And it reminded me a lot of this exile, a lot of this call for people to come back. So they do. They make their way back and they, they begin to establish homes and they be sort of begin to rebuild. Um, and it's, it's an incredible story. You know, and, and the point from last week, if I could remember it word for word, I don't know if I can or not, was you don't belong in the good, you belong in God's best. And the good was a good place. Babylon was a good place. It wasn't the, the, the scrabbly desert of, of, of Israel. It was, it was New York. It was L.A. It was Paris. It had every kind of culture and comfort you would, you would want. It was a center of civilization, language and art and music and everything you could imagine right? But you know, they didn't belong there. God says, you don't belong there. You belong in my best. You belong in the place that I've had for you since the beginning of time. So come on home. So they do, and they make their way there. So we are now in part two of this, part two called Rebuild. We are in chapter three today. I want to read a little, just a few verses of this and kind of talk through parts of this, and, uh, and then um, we'll see what God wants to say. So we are in chapter three, beginning in verse one. Verse, chapter 2 ended, by the way, with all of the people settling into their towns. 
And verse 3 picks up this way. It says, when the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, the people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. It's important to pay attention to that. It's been a long time since they've been able to come together as a unified people. In Babylon, they were just one of many conquered peoples who were expected to sort of disperse and mix into the melting pot of the Babylonian or the Persian, the Persian, the Persian culture. Now they come together, and the Bible says they come together, assemble together as one in a community. We are God's people collectively. Verse 2, then Joshua, son of Josadak, and his fellow priest, and Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, and his associates, began to build the altar of the God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. And look at verse 3. Despite their fear of the peoples around them, they built the altar on its foundation and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord, both the morning and evening sacrifices. Verse 4, then in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. After that, they presented the regular burnt offerings, the new moon sacrifices, and the sacrifices for all the appointed sacred festivals of the Lord, as well as those as as well as those brought as freewill offerings to the Lord. Verse 6, on the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. And so when when they come together in their towns, they find that their villages and their homes are not exactly empty and waiting for them. There are people there. There are remnants of of the ones who escaped captivity. And these who had escaped captivity have sort of blended in with the other Canaanites around them. And now when they're coming back and God's people are coming together, they're sensing, we're going to run into some opposition here. We're afraid of what's happening. And it says that despite their fear of the people around them, they built the altar on its foundation. I, I, I began to see this. I began to think through that, that, you know, in my life, how many times fear has stood in the way of God's calling in my life. I even think about this, starting this church, you know, nearly 10 months ago, talking with Megan and praying about it and just thinking through all the, all the real fears that were just welling up inside. I was afraid. I was afraid of, okay, what are, what are, what are other people going to think? Are there going to people think that, that it's like, you know, I don't know, a lot, a lot of fill in the blanks. They're going to think that, you know, Brad is sort of a lone ranger, just wants to go do his own thing. Or are they going to think that, you know, who is he? Why, why does he think he's special? You know, I begin to be afraid. I'm afraid of what if this doesn't work? What if nobody follows us? What if nobody gets on board with this? What if we can't find a place to meet? What if we can't find people to, to, to sort of, you know, lead and worship or... Um, you know, just what if, what if, what if? And there were so many fears that came along with this calling that God had given. And I, look, that's, that's true. That's true of any kind of thing God calls us to do is there's going to be the presence of fear that's going to be creeping in on that. You know, so it doesn't say that they waited until their fears were gone. They say, and despite that, despite the fears being here, despite this, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. We, we have to do what God's called us to do. We have to do this. 
So it always stands in the way of God's calling. But no, I want you to hear, this is the most important thing. Their first act of restoration is what? <clears throat> Rebuilding the altar. Not the walls. You know, from a strategic standpoint, the walls would make sense. Especially if there's fear at play in this. Especially if there's opposition. If I'm these guys, if I'm one of these guys, I think, okay, guys, we got a lot of work to do. We got to protect our people first and foremost. Let's get some walls up first. Let's establish a place of safety before we really get into what God's called us to do. If we're safe, then we can really obey the law. But it says that in spite of their fears, the first thing they did is to rebuild the altar. And here's, so okay, fine, what's the altar mean? Well, there's a formula in the Old Testament. There's a formula when you're reading through this. And the formula is, is pretty simple. It, it looks like this. First of all, there's an encounter with God. It blows our minds. And we build an altar at that place. For example, let me read some to you. Abraham, in, in Genesis chapter 12, you can go by and read this, God appears to him. God gives him words. God says, I want you to leave. I want you to do and trust me and follow after. I want you to leave your father's house and your family, your, all, all of that stuff and go to the land I will show. After all of these promises, God makes him a promise. It says this, Abram built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there, he went on toward the hills east of Bethel and pitched his tent. There, it goes on later to say, there he built another altar. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So there's Abram, father of the faith. He encounters God. He is, uh, just has this transformative experience. And what does he do? He builds an altar to the Lord. goes on, his son Isaac, several chapters later in Genesis 26 Isaac then has his own encounter with the Lord. It says, from there he went up to Beersheba. That night the Lord appeared to him, Isaac, and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. Do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, and I will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. And God extends that same promise to Isaac, the son. He says, the same thing I'm promising to your father, I'm promising to you. Isaac built an altar there and called on the name of the Lord. <coughs> Isaac's son Jacob, several chapters later, said the word says this, then God said to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Jacob and all his people with him came to Luz, that is Bethel, in the land of Canaan. There he built an altar and he called the place El Bethel. And then finally, fast forward several hundred years now, the people are have been brought out of Exodus and they erect the tabernacle and later on they build the temple and at the heart of the tabernacle are two altars. One is an altar of burnt offering, whole burnt offering, sacrifices, and there's also an altar of incense that's inside the holy place. So the altar has always represented this place of worship. And altars are never a static memorial to what God has done. They're always a place of sort of ongoing dynamic sacrifice. And so when Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, when they build this, whatever the size it was, 
it's a place of sacrifice. It's a place of, of, of giving something of, that, 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 that lays upon there and gives its life as an act of worship to this transcendent one. It rep, it, it's worship. That's how they worshiped. They didn't have this. They didn't have this. You know, they don't have these things up here. That God had not revealed this sort of new covenant worship to them. The kind of worship that God called for, for, for them to have was to give of yourself until it hurts. You can't lay your body on the altar and die. God's saying, that's not what I'm asking. But I am asking that you give something else in your stead to die on this altar as an act of sacrifice to me. This is worship. So the, the altar has always been this place of sort of dynamic ongoing sacrifice. And God then, as he's bringing the people back, God is saying, before you build the house, build the altar. Before you build the house, build the altar. You know, and I just, guys, I, I can't get away from what that means for me. Because there's a lot of things I want to build I want to build a family. I want to build a church, right? I want to build a business. I want to do all these things. I want to shore up with walls and structure and all this stuff. And if I'm reading this and if I'm understanding what the Spirit of God is saying, the Spirit of God is saying, you make sure that the altar of worship is central in your life before anything else. And so I, I, you know, I think about that. I think about as, you know, as God's people in exile here, I talked about this last week, I believe that we are a people who are increasingly more in exile, you know, if not, if not legally, then certainly culturally we're being pushed to the margins and the time will come when legally things that we hold to be sacred are being pushed to the margins too. That day is coming. We are increasingly now people in exile as God is calling us to to, to come back together in unity and to build his kingdom, where are the altars? What does that look like? As we're building a church, which we're doing here, where are the altars? And I don't mean the pieces of furniture that are up at the front, you know? You can, you can go to any church and find those nice golden oak, you know, altars, and if they're really nice, they'll have the plush velvet things to kneel on, and if they're really high church, they'll have the little places where you can put the communion cups in, and I think how far we've gone, how far we've come from an altar in the Word being a stone place that is covered with blood and fire and char to this plush carved piece of furniture now, I'm not suggesting that we need to throw those out and put stone down and cover them with char blood. I get this. I understand. That's the old. This is the new. I understand. But we've made this into something that it's not. And that's not, the altars don't even represent anything, really. It's a piece of furniture. It's a piece of wood. What this means is, where is the worship? Where is the centrality of worship and the centrality of prayer? in the church, in our church. I want this to be the case. I want us, before we do anything else, and I believe we're doing it, to have built an altar before we erect walls and all these other things. We have laid this foundation and said, before we are anything else, we are a worshiping family. We are a praying church. We are a church who is consecrated, giving of ourselves, dying to ourselves. 
and we've laid, in, in, in the U.S., we have laid the foundations of a tremendous evangelical industry. And I've been guilty of this. We have built up this just extraordinarily strong and influential and wealthy industry that we call the church in America. That I'm afraid that often, too often than not, we have failed to build up the altars inside of it. And so, despite their fear, they say, this is what we do first. We don't even have a temple yet. But we have an altar to the Lord right here in the middle of rubble and ruin. We're going to worship the Lord. And so they do that. On the first day of the seventh month, they begin to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, though the foundation of the Lord's temple had not yet been laid. Let's keep reading. Let's go on to... Um, now let's read verse 7. Then they gave money to the masons and carpenters and gave food and drink and oil to the people of Sidon and Tyre so that they would bring cedar logs by sea from Lebanon to Joppa as authorized by, the, by Cyrus, king of Persia. So they're gathering in all of their resources and they're outsourcing. Please bring in these. We need these materials. And they're, they're being generous. In the seventh, second month of the second year after their arrival at the house of God in Jerusalem, Zerubbabel, Joshua, and the rest of their brothers began the work appointing Levites, 20 years of age and older, to supervise the building of the house of the Lord. Verse 9, Jeshua and his sons and brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, descendants of Hodaviah, and the sons of Hinnadad and their sons and brothers, all Levites, joined together in supervising those working on the house of God. So they get to work. We've laid the, we've laid the, the, the altar down. We've built the altar. Now it's time to get work on the temple. And the Levites are constructing this. These are the ones who have been consecrated and set apart according to the law of God to do this. In verse 10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments and trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph with cymbals, took their places to praise the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. With praise and thanksgiving, they sing to the Lord, he is good, his love to Israel endures forever. And all the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. And so they do what they, what they never thought was possible. They do what they've dreamed of, but many of them have been dreaming of for years. Stones laid in the shape of the temple on the ground. Nothing else is there, but they can see it. They can see the footprint. They can see the carved you know, stone that that's lays out before them, and they can just imagine it being there again. But here's something interesting, verse 12. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. And so two generations are here, Side by side, you have the old guard. The old guard are the ones who, who had, who were, they were the ones who were here. They saw the temple being destroyed. They remember its former glory. 
They remember the, 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 the swells of people crowding into the temple courtyards during festival seasons. They remember the, the, the awe of that. And they suffered through the indignity of being hauled away to Babylon and being there for 70 years. And they have been waiting and crying out for the Lord to, re, to come and to do something. And now, to their absolute astonishment, they've been brought back. And with them, though, is the new guard. These are the ones who were too young to remember this. Maybe they weren't even born yet. Maybe they were born in Babylon. We don't know. But they come back, and all of a sudden, they're of age. And they don't know the old. All they know are the stories. And so the, the temple is laid, and the, the, the old guard begins to see this, and they just begin to weep. Because it's not the same. It doesn't feel the same. It doesn't look the same. What's happened? I remember I was pastor of a, of a church, sort of a, more of a traditional church in West Virginia. This is some, some years back. Um, and when I got there, it was a largely older congregation, a few younger families. The church had had its heyday back in the 80s or so. And like many of those sort of traditional churches, if you walk inside the foyer, they've got these plaques on the wall. You know, anybody that's grown up in traditional churches, you know where the plaques are that's got the little... You can slide in the numbers, you know, and this is the record, the record plaque, the memorial, and one of them will say, last week's Sunday school attendance, it'll have like, you know, 25, and last week's worship was, you know, 55, and then um, last week's offering was whatever, $150, but then it has record attendance at the bottom. I remember seeing this when I walked into this foyer for the first time, and I, you know, I, I, I half rolled my, I was a young, you know, real young pastor, and I just kind of half rolled my eyes. I didn't want to say anything to anybody, but I just like, really? You know, and, and the, the record attendance over here, it had 408. And I, I remember turning to one of these people. I said, really? Is that, is that figure right? You guys had 408 here, people here in this church? And this individual just lit up, just lit up about how powerful of a season that was in the church's life back in the 80s, you know, and how, how we would just fill the place up, and you know, Pastor Easley, that, that was, that was, uh, that was an Easter Sunday, and we just invited everybody we knew, and we just filled the place out, and that was just the most amazing thing there all together, and it's, it's been that way. That's been the record since 19... 80-something, right there for all to see, there to remind you of where God was and what he was doing back 20 years ago and sort of this unstated expectation of if only we could be there again, right? And the hardest place to be is sort of that in-between of where God has been and where he's going, knowing that this is not it, I wish it could look this way, but I know he's going somewhere, and I'm sort of, sort of stuck here in this in-between. The old was great, and the old guard are looking, saying, this is pitiful. This is nothing. Don't you remember the glory of the temple? Don't you remember how, how, how it would shine, that the limestone would just radiate like it was glowing white when the fires would just cascade off of the walls? Don't you remember the shouts of the people when we would have just all of God's people lifting up praises? Don't you remember how it would just drown out all the noise throughout the Kidron Valley? Don't you remember just seeing the blood of sacrifices flowing through and the smell of incense? Don't you remember God's glory filling this place? 
And it's not that way now, says the old guard. What's happened? And they begin to weep. And the Bible says this. It says that no one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping. Get your mind around that. This is not one or two disgruntled people. This is a whole generation of God's people who are heartbroken. And their noise is mixing in with the noise of the new guard who are crying out in praise and celebration. It's all mixing together. And there's something, there's something beautiful in that tension, if I can say that. Weeping for the old, but rejoicing in the new. No one could distinguish because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. And so they lay the foundation of the temple. They laid the altar. They restored the altar. Then they begin to lay the foundation. What is God doing? The old guard asked that. And maybe there's confusion. Maybe there's uncertainty even as the foundation is laid. Maybe there's uncertainty on the behalf of God's people. How are we going to do this? Our neighbors hate us. And we're going to look at that next week. We're going to look at the opposition next week. But God's called us to do this. And even within our own ranks, there's some unsettledness. What's God doing? And here's where the prophets have something to say. Isaiah is one of these. And Isaiah is long dead by now. But by the Spirit of God, he saw into this position, into this future, he saw what was going to happen. And he prophesied about this, this return. And it says this in, in Isaiah 43. I don't know if all of it is up on the screen, but we've quoted this a lot. And somebody texted me this last night, incidentally. Didn't even know we were talking about this. I was like, how, how much is this? So Isaiah, Isaiah then, several hundred years before, is, is speaking into this very thing right here. And he says this. He says, forget the former things, says Isaiah. Do not dwell on the past. See, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Do you not perceive it? I'm making a way in the desert and streams in the wasteland. And Isaiah gives a hint. He planted that seed hundreds of years before that says God has a plan. He's doing something new. He is restoring and rebuilding. And then Fast forward now to Haggai. Haggai is here on site. He's looking around. He's seeing these things. And by the Spirit of God, he gives this prophecy. Go to, go to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2 says this. This is, by the way, this is, this is one of the most incredible prophetic words, I think, in the, in the Old Testament. It says this, on the 21st day of the seventh month. So this is the same season of where we just read. The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. The Lord said, speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Josadak, the high priest, and to the remnant of the people. There's a remnant of people here. Ask them, who of you is left who saw this house in its former glory? You, old guard, who of you can remember this? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? And the old guard are weeping, saying, that's absolutely what it looks like. It looks like nothing. 
It looks like a shadow of what we knew. Does it not seem to you like nothing? But now, verse 4, but now be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. And work, for I am with you. So God, first he says that. God says, okay, let's be honest. Look around. This seems like nothing in the past. But I'm telling you, be strong and get to work. There's work to be done. Put your big boy pants on, step up, and do it. Just like God says that. This is what I covenanted, for I am with you, says the Lord Almighty. Verse 5, this is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt. In other words, I promised all this before. It hasn't changed. I have not forgotten you. You might have abandoned me, but I have not abandoned you. And my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. Verse 6, this is what, this gets good here. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. Did he leave anything unshaken? Y'all say no. Everything will be shaken. I will shake all nations and what is desired by all nations will come. And I will fill this house with glory. Verse 9, the glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of the former house, says the Lord God Almighty. And in this place I will grant peace. And God comes and through the prophets he says, you who think that this is nothing, what's to come will be greater than what was here before. The glory that, was, the glory that's, that I have in store to pour out will cause the past to pale and diminish and be weak in comparison. I bet that's motivating for them. I'm motivated by it. I'm not even there, and I'm excited. Like, okay, God, if this is what you said, we can do this. We got the foundation here. We got the altar here. Who cares about the people that are haters on the outside? We're going to do what you've called us to do because we take you at your word when you say that you've not abandoned us, when you say that you have, uh, you're going to shake the nations and pour your glory out, we're going to be strong. We're going to do it. We're going to get to work. And so they do. They jump in. Their word strikes home. There's, there's opposition, though, in, in chapter 4. And there's bumps in the road. In chapter 5. And we'll look at that next week. But let me end with this. Brian, come on up. Some of us have, and I don't want, I don't, I want to be careful not to take God's word and apply it to situations that it's not meant to be applied to. We can, we can all be guilty of that. We can all believe that God is just going to restore everything that in our mind we want him to restore. That may not be the case. God has not promised to make everything new that we want him to make new. Right? You with me on that? However, I do believe that, that God has things that he is building in us and through us, in our families, in my family, and in your families, in our church, in our community, in our state. I believe that he that he wants to and, and is prepared to send revival to our nation. I believe that. I know that's the heart of God. 
that he is waiting and he's wanting to send a shaking of our nation to fill his glory here again. Because that's the nature of God. It doesn't take much. You don't have to be a, you know, a, a, you don't have to be a prophet to get that idea that God wants to do that to any people who are open to it. So I believe that he wants to do restoration of our churches and restoration of his kingdom and to build up altars again as they were before. So what's the best posture we can be in? Worship and prayer, first and foremost. Altars in our homes. Have an altar in your home, not physically, spiritually. Lead your families. Lead your kids in prayer, in honoring God, in seeking after Him. In spite of fear, this is what we do. And the words of the prophets are, be strong, get to work, don't be afraid, the glory is coming. And my sense then is, as the if I can't apply this to our church context, I will. I'll run the risk of over, overstating it. Bear with me. But I do believe with all of my being that God has called King's Church to do a new work together. This coming together is one like we read about. That's indicative of the church coming together. And I believe he's calling King's Church to, to lay, to build an altar first and foremost. So that responsibility begins with me and you individually. We cannot give the world what we don't have. We cannot be the people of God if our altars are crumbled and in ruins. So as we, and I, I I believe we're doing that. I'm seeing that in you. I'm hearing that from you. I believe God's doing that in us. And he's even bringing that into our church culture of prayer being central to it and worship being central to it and being in the hidden places, really being integral to who we are. That's the posture that we can be in. And as that's there, God says, okay, now it's time to lay foundations. And we're, we're, we're beginning to do that, to sort of put some other structures in place and some other things in place and, you know, so I don't, I know that there's opposition though. Betsy had given that word um, a couple weeks ago about, about uh, sort of the snakes as, as, as we scraping, scraping the earth to kind of begin to do a work, these snakes coming up. Um, where's my phone? Janine, I want to read that from Mellis. Is that okay? Janine, I don't know where you are, but hopefully I can. Okay. So this is a, this is a dream and we pay attention to dreams, you know, I've, I've, I've never been accused of being overly prophetic. I've been accused of the opposite, of not paying attention to things. <laughs> I've never been accused, accused of the opposite, uh, of being overly prophetic, but I do pay attention when certain dreams and, and visions and words begin to align, especially when they come through children. No offense, grown-ups. But children don't know any better, right? They just tell you as it is and what they hear and dream about. So I want to read this. This is really awesome. Um, so this is, this is Melis' dream. Melis, you know, what is she, like five maybe? Four, five, six, something like that. 
She said, so Melis had a scary dream the other night that she told me about. She was at church and a bunch of scary sharks were swimming around in the air trying to throw blankets on people. Interesting. She told me that one was trying to throw a blue blanket with a tooth on it onto me. And then this is, Janine works in the dental industry, so that makes sense to her. I asked her about different people in the church, um, and the only person's name that she recognized, Janine, I'm reading this about Melis. <laughs> That's awesome. So I asked her about different people in the church, and the only person's name that she recognized that was in her dream was Miss Meg. She said that she was just standing there. No sharks were after her. So, you know, I, I'm thinking about that idea of predators. And predators are not people. Let me make that very clear. This is not about people coming into our church. You know, our, our, we do not fight against flesh and blood. Our enemy is not of this world. But there's going to be opposition for the work that God's called us to do. Because the enemy, and I think it's beginning even today with as many weird things that have been happening with broken arms and sicknesses and pink eye. I've got like three texts this morning from people who couldn't make it because of just things happening, sickness. Maybe that's just the climate of where we are, but after so many of those and one like weekend, you're thinking, okay, this is really obvious. It's just claim it and march forward. I, I want to commit to you though, let's be strong together. Let's get to work together. In spite of fear, lay the foundation. Amen? All right. Let me pray for us and we're going to worship here. Father, you keep your word, you keep your promises. You're unfailing. You will accomplish what you began. Nothing will stand in the way of that. But we want to be in a posture, Lord, of, of, of being of partnering with you. We want to be in a posture, Lord, of, of being before the altar. Not afraid of what's around us. Not concerned right now with building a wall. but to focus on being a worshiping, praying people, honoring to you. That's the position we want to be in. Before we build our house, Lord, we build an altar. Father, we just pray for release of your grace and your protection upon the King's Church family. Lord, we proclaim deliverance, Lord, if any of these situations are being caused by the enemy. We speak freedom over them. We pray that your angels, your hosts, would go and minister in power and bring deliverance and healing. Lord, we don't pray for comfort and safety. We pray that we can be empowered, protected by you for the work you've called us to do. Draw us together, Lord. Build us up. Give us strength. Give us courage for the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up together.